Now, Paul's going to go on here in chapter 6 talking about his ministry. And I noticed, if you got the notes, oh, look at there, Schofield put something helpful in. If you look back in the text in the Schofield Bible, I didn't get the page numbers together, I'm sorry. This power outage we had here this morning just threw me all the way off. Page 1234 is where chapter 6 begins in the Schofield Bible. But if you look back, 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 back to chapter 2 on page 1231, Schofield breaks up the text with these little things inserted here about Paul's ministry. Before verse 14, it says the ministry to chapter 6, verse 10. And he breaks the text up into these little sections. The first aspect of the ministry, he says, the ministry triumphant, 2, 14 through 17. And then chapter 3, verse 1, he says, the ministry accredited. And then chapter 3, verse 6, the ministry spiritual and glorious, not legal. And I, I got looking at this, I said, these are pretty nice headings. I like that. I'll mention those. At the beginning of chapter 4, the ministry, honest. And he breaks that into three little pieces because the truth taught is commended by the life, because not self but Christ Jesus as Lord is preached, because the power is of God alone. And then at verse 8, he gives another aspect of the ministry, the ministry, suffering, Underneath that, at the beginning of chapter 5, he says, Why death itself has no terrors for the servant of the Lord. And then he goes back to the aspects of the ministry at chapter 5, verse 14, the motive and object of the ministry. And that's where we spent so much time in these last few weeks. And chapter 6, verse 1, he says, The ministry summary. So we would expect here to find Paul summarizing his ministry. And I was thinking about those words this morning, I do think sometimes, and when we talk about the ministry these days, we think about the church building, we think about the church workers and the, the, all the different things that have to be done to keep a ministry going and the pastor's house or housing allowance or whatever and the pastor and the the custodians and the deacons and the elders, and we're thinking about all kinds of things and calling them the ministry. But what did Paul call the ministry? I'm going back to chapter 5 at the end of it. <laughs> In chapter 5, he says, here's the ministry. He's committed, given, verse 18, given to us the ministry of reconciliation. And then in verse 19, he explains it again, to wit, that's an old way of saying, that is to say, let me explain that to you. Understand this, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. That's the ministry of reconciliation, the incarnation, the death of Christ for sins, and God accepting the payment for sins so that sins are no longer charged to people. And then he says he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. In verse 18, he called it the ministry of reconciliation. In verse 19, the word of reconciliation. And then he goes into the presentation of the gospel at the end of chapter 5. So 
in chapter 6, if Schofield's got it right, and this is a summary of Paul's ministry, he's not talking about the church building or the church staff or the tax situation or the receipts for the donations. He's talking about how we're doing sharing the gospel. That's the summary of Paul's ministry. And we'll read verses 1 and 2 here. We then, as workers together, servants together, ministers together with him, you might notice with him is in italics if you're reading a, a regular published King James Bible, with him is in italics, because the word workers together is translated from one word. It's a workers together thing. There are other places where other things are together, but here we're workers together. And it is correct to say with him. We're workers together with the Lord who committed this ministry unto them. He's the one that had this ministry. He did the work. He, God was in Christ. And he, he made himself of no reputation. He took the sins on himself, reconciling the world unto himself. And he's committed unto us the ministry or the word of reconciliation. So we then, because we're connected to him, workers together with him, beseech you that you receive not the grace of God in vain. He's not worried that they won't be saved. He's not saying that at all. He's saying, how good are you at carrying on the ministry of the grace of God, the ministry of the word of reconciliation? Don't be worthless. Don't be empty. Don't be without result. You don't do that. You need to get involved. He saith in verse 2, he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, in the day of salvation have I succored thee. The very day that you're saved... That's when God's ready to help you share the gospel. We heard testimony yesterday. can't remember. It might have been Louis Hernandez was sharing about the young Tampa Bay Buccaneer football player that's come here to this church, sat right over there for many weeks. When Yankee Arnold was speaking, he trusted the Savior. And then he heard that Louis was going out Friday or Saturday to go witnessing in a mall or at the fair or something. And Louis said, and we'll teach you how to do it. And that young football player, he's, he's this big, but he's young, <laughs> and his wife and his two kids. But he went with Louis to the fair, and Louis said he watched him a couple times, and then he says, I want to do that. And he started sharing the gospel and leading people to the Lord. I think Louis said he led a dozen, that, that football player led a dozen people to the Lord with, within just days of when he himself trusted the Lord. That's the way this verse is supposed to be understood. He saith, I have heard thee, you that are just saved, you Corinthians, I've heard thee in a time accepted in the day of salvation have I succored thee. I wish we'd just say helped. Succored is a big, strong word that means helped. I helped you. Behold, he says, now is the accepted time. Behold, now, the day of salvation. That's Proverbs 27, 1, but... It's just Paul taking that, phrasing from the book of Proverbs and saying, when, hey, when you get saved, it's the time to get going. Now is the accepted time to start your ministry. I, in the notes I wrote down, receive not the grace of God in vain, to no purpose. God has a purpose for each one who receives salvation by the grace of God. You better get it. Ephesians 2, we know verses 8 and 9 because that's how we're so sure we're saved by grace through faith. It says, for by grace you stand saved through faith. 
It's, why did you say that, Mr. Gilbert? Why did you say you stand saved? It says, for a grace are you saved. Yeah, I know, but I know Greek grammar. And my Greek grandmother said um, that the tense of the verb right there was perfect. It's not just a past tense, by grace you have been saved. It's a perfect tense, which means by grace you were in the past saved and you're still saved. It's in the verb. You stand saved by grace through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But the next verse is there in the notes. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained, that if you feel like it, someday when you learn enough, you should start thinking about it. Is that what it says? God, We are created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. It doesn't mean about wait, you know, I, I think you should be baptized after you're saved. Well, shouldn't I wait a few months to make sure it's real? And oh, Jesus said, go in the world and, and preach the gospel. And he said, make disciples and baptize them. Well, get it done. Now, in the next paragraph in the notes, I go off into something you may not agree with. That's all right, I've been wrong before, but perhaps this has some element of truth in it. I do not believe that God has a plan for every detail of everything that happens. I do not believe everything that happens is determined by God. Since Adam sinned and then begat children, that's us, in his fallen image, tarnished by sin, God has chosen the consequences of our bad choices but he has not chosen that we must make bad choices. So some people just get ooey-gooey and say God knows what he's doing and the power went off this morning and there's a purpose behind it and oh my. And I don't, I just, it's not in there. It's not in the book. It may be your philosophy, but in the book, God is involved as much as he wants to be, but he limits himself from being involved in some things. You can pray diligently that somebody will be saved, and it's a good thing to do. And you should pray and pray and pray all your life, and if they're not saved, maybe they still will get saved after you die. But God's not going to answer your prayer by breaking that person's will. He's not going to do it. That person's got to trust Christ as Savior. God did not choose everything. Well, you say, God is sovereign. Yes, he is sovereign. He can do whatever he wants to do. There is nothing too hard for God. But he can't do what he has chosen himself not to do. Among the things he can't do, he can't lie. He can't go back on his word. And as somebody reminded us of yesterday, talking about his ranch meeting where the, he let the kid ask questions from the floor, God cannot, he cannot do something stupid like make a rock so big that he cannot pick it up. And that's the best way to answer that question, certainly. <coughs> so... God has chosen, I'm reading from my notes again, now we'll get back to the Bible here shortly. God has chosen things for many people and many groups. God has chosen some things. God chose the Jews. If you just follow, I can turn to it on the, on the screen here. Acts, Acts is over here. Chapter 13. I think it's going to go there. Maybe it's not. I better click with this thing. Acts 13. There it is, okay, in verse 17. It's spelled out in the notes, but I want to put it on the screen. Paul is preaching to the, uh, 
I take that back. I just read the verse because I don't remember if it's Peter or Paul. The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with a high arm, he brought them out of it. God has chosen, you may have noticed, the people of Israel, the children of Abraham, and not the children of Ishmael, but the children of Isaac, the son of Abraham. God has chosen this people, Israel, and for certain things. But it says it in the Bible, in the book of Acts, God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt in the lands of as strangers in the land of Egypt, and with a high arm he brought them out. In the news these days, I have read some people saying they don't have any title to the land of Israel, Palestine. They're wrong. I read it the other day. It's in the book. They have title to the land. They have a promise from the only God that's God that it would be their land and it would be their land forever. Now, they, he threw them out of it on their ear. He threw them out to the Assyrians and he threw them out to the Babylonians. He threw them out to the Romans, and he's going to throw them out again to the Antichrist. But when the end of the time of Jacob's trouble comes, he's going to put them back in the land, and they'll never be out of it again. That is something God has chosen for his people Israel, among other things. Paul exulted over the people of Israel when he was so sad for them that they were lost. He said, well, what, what is their advantage? He said, much of a way, chiefly because unto them was committed the oracles of God. They got the Bible. Aren't you glad? Somebody got it. They got it, and we got it from them. What else? Through them, according to the flesh, Christ came. They got the Bible, and they got our Savior. And from the Jewish people, we have the Bible, and we have the Savior, and we are desperately owing to the Jews. God chose the Jews. Going on in the notes, Jesus chose the twelve we call the apostles or the 12 disciples. I'll read Luke chapter 6, verse 13 here on the screen because I don't have the page number and my Bible's falling apart. Luke 6, 13 says, When it was day, he called unto him his disciples. There's a whole bunch of people following him. And of them, of the disciples, he chose 12, whom he also named apostles. And in case you don't remember, there's Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called Zelotes, and Judas, the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, which also was the traitor. Obviously, Luke wrote this down a little later in the flow of things. He chose the twelve. He called them apostles. They were different. In chapter 10 of Luke, you see that he chose 70. He chose a bunch more. Chapter 10, verse 1, After these things the Lord appointed others 70 also and sent them out two by two before his face. Well, I don't want to go, but God chose you. He chose them and sent them and said, Go preach. <laughs> and then after that, verse 2 is a verse that we often refer to. This is for us. The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Don't we feel like that's for us? I think we do. And yet it's what Jesus addressed to those 70 that he was sending out. And to the other disciples, he said, I'd, we ought, really ought to send more than 70. The harvest is great, but the laborers are few. God chose Peter for a particular thing. 
In the book of Acts, in chapter 15, we find that in verse 7, there had been much disputing. They got together for a church meeting, and sometimes in church meetings there is much disputing. Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. What did God chose Peter to do? To be the first one to break the barrier there. The Jewish people weren't about to go to the Gentiles, and Peter said, Well, God made me do it. And he's thinking about what happened to him in chapter 10 and chapter 11. And he's telling them, you know this happened. I was there because God forced me to go. I was, he sent me a vision three times. Eat this dirty stuff. Eat this unclean food. It's against your dietary rules. Eat it. And Peter says, I don't do that. And God says, what I've cleansed, you don't call dirty. And after he did that three times, there's a knock on the door down below because God had sent an angel to this Gentile Cornelius and said, your prayers are heard. This unsaved Gentile Cornelius had God hearing his prayers. Think about that. And Cornelius, at the direction of the angel, sent messengers, soldiers, to where Paul, Peter was. And just after the third time of the vision that Peter got up on the roof of the house, there's a knock on the door below, and they go to the door and they say, we're here for Peter. And they say, well, he's, he doesn't talk to Gentiles. And Peter comes down the stairs and says, yeah, I got to go with them. And he took six Jewish believers with him. And that was a good safety idea. So there'd be witnesses besides himself. And he gets over to Cornelius's house. And Cornelius says, God told me, you're going to tell me how to be saved. So Peter says, well, let's see. <laughs> you know about Jesus. And he tells him the story of Jesus again. And he just gets, I'm going to go back to it just because it's so much fun. At the end of chapter 10, <laughs> at the end of the chapter, he's going along introducing the idea of who Jesus is. And he said, God anointed Jesus, this is verse 38, Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with the power he went around doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. God was with him. And we, and he's got himself and these six Jewish guys there, we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of Jews and Jerusalem. And they killed him, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to everybody, but unto witnesses chosen before of God, even to us who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people, that's the Jewish people, not to you. Say Gentile, you got to spit. To preach to the people and testify it was he which was ordained of God to be the judge of the living and of the dead. To him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission or forgiveness of sins. Now, Paul, Peter's just getting warmed up. He's got a lot more to tell him, but they interrupt him. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all of them which heard the word. Boom. And those six Jewish guys that came with him, which believed already, 
were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit. They heard them speak with tongues, and it was gibberish. No, it wasn't gibberish. They heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. How'd they know it was speaking with tongues? Because the guys that speak were from Scotland or Armenia or somewhere where they didn't know the language that and the Jews heard them speaking in their own tongue like they did at Pentecost and magnify God and then Peter said well the next thing ought to be baptism can any man forbid water that there should not be baptized which have already received the Holy Ghost as well as we we had to get baptized in order to receive the Holy Ghost they have already received the Holy Spirit in chapter 11 he's called on his heals to the council in Jerusalem, and the ones that were there saved and Jewish contended with him, said, you went into men uncircumcised and did eat with them. Peter rehearsed the matter from the beginning, told him the whole story about the unclean food and all that. And then he says, as I began to speak, I was just getting started. I had four more points in my message and a poem. The Holy Ghost fell on them as on us at the beginning. That was the bottom line. He said, I told them the gospel, and I was going to te teach them to them, but they got saved, and the Holy Ghost, they had the Holy Spirit just like us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. He said, it was the same thing that happened to them. It happened to us back on the day of Pentecost. For as much then as God gave them the like gift as he did unto us who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they stopped fussing with him. And then we get back to chapter 13, where now they're fussing with Paul because he's telling the people in the regions of Galatia that they don't have to keep the law. <laughs> and Peter gets up, Peter gets up, I'm sorry, chapter 15. It went to the wrong reference. Chapter 15, Peter gets up in verse 7 and says, You know, those assembled leaders in Jerusalem, you know how a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and become Jewish and start keeping the... No, he didn't say that. Hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knows the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did to us, and put no difference between us and them purifying their hearts by faith. And here's Peter's clarification of the gospel. Why tempt you, God, to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? And he says this so nicely. If I'd said it, I would have said it the other way around. But he said, we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, I would have said it, they'll be saved same as I am. But he didn't say that. He said, we'll be saved even as they, Jewish people, you're not saved because you keep the law. You're saved by faith, the same as these dirty Gentile, I mean these Gentile brothers. And the multitude kept silence, and they started listening to Barnabas and Saul, telling about all that God was doing by bringing faith to the Gentiles. God chose Peter to take the gospel to the Gentiles, first of all the apostles, and then the other ones did it as well. In the notes, it says the apostles and other believers were chosen to be witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. We just read this from Peter's mouth in chapter 10, verse 40 and 41. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before of God. What did God choose? People would say, there's Jesus risen from the dead. We need to tell other people about that. They were chosen to be witnesses 
not chosen to be saved, chosen to be witnesses, even to us who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. God chose a lot of things. He did not choose who would be saved and who would not be saved. The next point in the note, Saul, we call him Paul, was chosen to be the apostles to the Gentiles. Peter broke the door open, but Paul says, it was me. It was me. In chapter 11 of Romans, in verse 13, he says this, I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. We know Saul on his way to Damascus to persecute the believers, and the believers were all Jewish at the time. He went to Damascus. On the road to Damascus, Acts chapter 9, on the road to Damascus, he tells his story first in Acts chapter 9. Luke tells it from Paul's mouth. And he gets saved. He says, you know, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you? And he says, Jesus, whom you persecute. It's hard to kick against the pricks. And he blinds him. And he says, get on into the city. Somebody will come tell you what to do. And they took him blind three days without sight into the city. And God sent a messenger to Ananias. To him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, yeah, here. <laughs> That's what you say when God talks to you. The Lord said unto him, get up, arise, and go into the street called Straight. I think that street's still there in Damascus, I'm not sure. Enquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. He's praying, and he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias, that would be you, coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. So that's how he... Had, and Ananias says, I've heard about Saul. He's come here to kill me or drag me off to jail. He's got authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on his name. And the Lord said to Ananias, go thy way. He is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles. And I'm sorry, if Ananias had been talking, he would have spit when he said Gentiles. That just that, that bad, the relationship there. He's a chosen vessel, Jesus said, to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. I've got to show him how great things he must suffer for my sake. Luke records Paul telling the story of his salvation on the road three times in the book of Acts. The third time in Acts chapter 26, we get more information than we get in the other two times. In Acts chapter 26, in verse 17 and 18, well, it starts very familiar. Who art thou, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus whom you persecute. Rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things in which I will appear unto thee. I chose thee for this purpose, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles, unto whom now I send thee. When Saul, the persecutor, newly saved, heard that, he was not necessarily happy. He said, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. Verse 18, Jesus is still talking, to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Some people mistakenly think Saul didn't really understand the gospel until he got three days later to Damascus and Ananias talked to him. 
I think chapter 26, verse 18 spells out a lot of the things that Jesus told Saul. And if Saul didn't get it, he's pretty dumb. You know, you're going to go to the Gentiles so they can have forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them that are sanctified by faith that is in me. And he says, I wasn't disobedient. Saul was chosen to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And on the notes, the, next, the last little point here says, believers are chosen by God to serve him. In the upper room discourse in John chapter 15, Jesus told them a lot of things. He's using an illustration of the vine and the branches. He's saying, you're the branches, I'm the vine. Stay with me, abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. And as he's finishing up the illustration down in verse 16, before we get there, we'll just do this. In verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. Love and joy. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do whatsoever I command thee. Henceforth, I call you not servants. You've been servants. You've rightly called me Lord, but I'm not going to call you servants anymore. Servant doesn't know what his Lord doeth. I've called you friends. All things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. I didn't keep anything back. And then verse 16, you have not chosen me. Though they believed in him, that was their doing when they believed. But he says, I have chosen you, not to be saved, I have chosen you and ordained you. Did you know you're already ordained if you're a believer? You're ordained by Jesus. To what? That you go and bring forth fruit, and your fruit should remain. Jesus has chosen believers should serve him, should bear fruit. The fruit of an apple tree is apples. The fruit of an orange tree is orange. The fruit of a Christian tree is other believers. You should go and bring forth fruit, and your fruit should remain the only kind of fruit that remains what is the only thing that's going to abide the remaking of the heavens and the earth by fire it will be believers your fruit should remain and whatsoever you ask of the father in my name he may give it you believers are supposed to bear fruit because they're chosen by god not to be believers but to bear much fruit in first corinthians chapter 1 in verse 27 and 28, God talks about him choosing some. God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise, not to be saved, to share the gospel. God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, not to be saved, but to be able to witness to mighty. And he's chosen base things of the world and things which are despised as God chosen, yea, and things which are basically nothing to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. God uses people like me, people like you, things that are not, next to nothing, to share this silly, silly little message. Of, the gospel message, you know, it's not philosophy, it's, it's not deep. When Paul tried to talk to the philosophers at Athens, he got to the resurrection and they laughed him and wouldn't hear here anymore. Just a couple of them believed. But the gospel, he said at one point, I'd rather 
speak five words that people would understand than 10,000 words in another language. But five words. Christ died for my sins. I think that's a pretty good list of five words. We're going to go back to one more passage here that we've looked at so many times in these last few days. Here it says, God was in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 19. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Well, I don't want the word of reconciliation. God committed it to you. If you're saved, God committed it to you. We, you and me, Corinthians, you and me, Paul said, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's dead, the lost among you, be reconciled to God. Jesus would say it if he was here. I'm here instead of him. Be reconciled to God. That's our ministry. That's what God has chosen for us. I threw in 2 Timothy 2, 3, and 4 into the notes just because I like it. It doesn't mention exactly the uh, point of this, but it does talk about being chosen to be a soldier, no man that warreth, entangleth himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who has chosen him to be a soldier. Verse 3 says, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. If you're a good soldier, you don't go out there with your, your uh, stock portfolio keeping up with it on your laptop. You just don't do it. Israel has recalled their reserve, not just from within Israel, but from around the world. One gentleman of wealth has gone to the airport in New York to El Al and said, I'm paying for everybody that's returning to Israel. Every reservist returning to Israel, flight after flight after flight. He put, I think, $500,000 on his black American Express card. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life. What are you tied up with? What are you entangled with that is making you less effective as a soldier sharing this ministry of reconciliation. One more thing that God has chosen. Believers should be like Jesus. He didn't choose us to be believers, but he chose us that we should be like his dear son. John chapter 15 again, in verse 19. We read verse 16 before. Jesus in verse 18 says, If the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you. Here's a way to tell how worldly you are. You getting along good? Does the world love you? The world loves its own. But Jesus said to the disciples there, to the apostles, but because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Our dear friend and teacher Dick Seymour um, was pretty wild coming up. He had was born with a, a cleft palate, double hair lip, and went through a dozen more, more than a dozen surgeries before he was 18 years old and had a rough life. He was drinking and carousing to make up for the social ostracism that he endured. But he got saved. He got saved. He heard the gospel and got saved. And he told the story, he says, about two weeks after I got saved, I called the guy, the guy on the phone and said, is there any way I can get out of this? <laughs> and the guy says, what? Is salvation? He says, yeah, yeah. 
what's the matter? He says, I'm doing the same things I've always done, but now I'm miserable. <laughs> and the guy laughed at him. He said, no, you can't get out of it. You can be miserable if you want to, but you can't get out of the salvation That's, that you're stuck with. I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word. <laughs> one last passage here in this flow of thought. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. It says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Who's this written to? To the believers, to the saints, which at Ephesus and the faithful in Jesus Christ. In verse 4 he says, According as he, that would be God, has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Now the Calvinist reads that and says, see, he chose you to be in him before the foundation of the world. And they stop. That's not what it says. It says he's chosen you before the foundation of the world that we, that's the ones who will believe, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. He's chosen how believers should be after they become believers. He didn't choose that they would be believers. He chose that believers would be holy and without blame before him in love. Verse 5 says he predestinated us. Yeah, but to what? Now, most people read, that's maybe my own thing, I don't know, but most people read this, that, oh, we're going to be children of Jesus Christ because God predestinated us to be children of Jesus Christ. Aren't we wonderful? That's not what it says in my mind. You know that John starts off by saying, he came to his own creation, but his own people received him not. And I think it does say then in the next verse, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in his name. There's always some that will believe. And Ephesians 1.5 is referring to us bringing children into the family of God. He has predestinated us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ. Not that we're going to be adopted, but we're going to get some more aboard. We're going to bring some children into the family of God. He has predestinated us for this purpose. He's chosen us to serve him, to share the gospel, to deliver the word of reconciliation. He's predestinated us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. That's the good pleasure of his will. Now, since we're in Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm drifted off into this topic, I will go down to verse 9 and help you with that if I can. <sighs> Not verse 9. It's verse 11 that some people are so scared of because it looks to them like Calvinism, and I don't think it is. It's talking about Jesus Christ. He's going to gather together in one all things in Christ, in heaven and in earth. Verse 11 says, In whom, in Christ, also we have obtained an inheritance. Rewards for service, huh? Being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. I believe that him is referring to God. And I believe it says God works all things after the counsel of his own will. I do not think it says God works all things, period. It goes on after it works all things to say after the counsel of his own will. God has a will, agreed? 
God's will has a counsel. That may not have been a thought you've thought before. What is the counsel of God's will? I have it in my hand. This is the counsel of God's will. When he wants to make his will known, he doesn't usually send an angel to Cornelius' house. He delivers the word to his people, the Jews. They spread it to the world. We have the counsel of God's will. We can know what he wants us to do in his will by his word. And he doesn't do anything different than the counsel of his will. Everything that God does, he does it within the confines of what he has revealed. He will do or won't do because he's God and he can do what he wants to do and he doesn't do what he doesn't choose to do. He works all the things that he works within the confines of the Bible. I hope that helps you. I think it's a much easier way to understand that than to just to throw up your hands and say, God does everything because God doesn't do everything. When I sinned this morning and called two different people idiots in the space of 30 seconds because the one across the street from me didn't put his turn signal on when the light changed. I had to wait on him, and that's awful. You know that's stupid. And, and then there was another one, and I forget why I called him an idiot or her. But in any case, other than my sin, God chose a lot of things, but he didn't choose everything that I do that's wrong. I did that. I get spanked for that. God doesn't get spanked when I do something wrong. He's not responsible when I do something wrong. I am. All right, we're run out of time. We've come to the end of the notes. It's a wonderful thing. And we're going to go back, where I've been going back every week, to the last three verses of chapter 5. He says in verse 18, God has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Well, that's a good thing. Something God has done has taken that stood between us and God. This is our sin now. We don't use a wallet anymore. People took the money out of it. That I dropped my sin. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. What? We had this sin. It was on us. Jesus didn't have any, but it was blocking us from God. That's the historical problem that we have. But it says God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto him. He has already charged all of my sins and yours and every believer and every unbeliever to Jesus Christ. That's the word and the ministry of reconciliation. He's committed to us the word of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ. We need to beg people in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God, and here it is again. He explains this ministry of reconciliation one more time. Here we are. We all have sin on us. This is the way it was historically before Christ came. But he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him when we do no more than believe in him. That's the ministry of reconciliation and the word of reconciliation and folks we do pray you in Christ's stead be you reconciled to God believe in Jesus he loves you he died for you he wants you to be with him forever just believe in him let's pray father in heaven your word is rich we know you've chosen many things we know you've chosen that we who believe should serve you we are reassured that you did not pick some to be saved and some not to be saved, and they have no hope. We know that it is open to whosoever believeth in him. Whosoever believeth in him. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, 
that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We pray for the service to follow, for it, Lord, and the encouraging time we'll have at this homecoming service. In Jesus' name, amen.